Hey, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Uh, today, since I'm back for the first time in a while now, maybe even months, <laughs> sorry about that, um, I'm here to talk about my book, One Nation Under Blackmail, which if you remember from my last episode, the reason I was not around was because I was working on that book and now it is finished. Uh, because of supply chain issues, it will be coming out towards the end of September but it is due to hit that date. And there are some other issues related to publication and things like that that we we can talk about um, towards the end and maybe answer some uh, frequently asked questions about for people living outside the U.S., shipping charges. Will there be an ebook? Will there be an audiobook? And things like that we can get into uh, later on. Uh, joining me today, so I don't have to talk into the void and I can actually talk to a real person, um, is is Star, my amazing assistant, who also joined me on a podcast not that long ago when we were talking about Chile and neuro rights. I don't remember what number episode that was, but it was a good one. So I would encourage <laughs> you to check it out if you didn't hear it before. So, um, hi Star, how's it going? Hello, I'm good. How about you? I'm very glad to be done with this long book. Yes. And long book it yes. is. We can talk more about that <laughs> later, but it's clocking in at a little over 800 pages, not counting citations. It is very long. So, um, I should probably just start by explaining why the book is very long. The book is very long because I set out to do something really complex and it was very silly, perhaps. Um, to take on such a big project um, in January 2020, two months before COVID, and I lost childcare for like nine months. Um, anyway, so uh, basically the thesis of the book for people that are familiar with it is that I um, am seeking to place Epstein in context. So what does that mean? I'm trying to explain why Jeffrey Epstein was not an anomaly because, you know, I'm sure you're, a lot of people are familiar with the mainstream narrative that Oh, Epstein was just this one bad, naughty billionaire. And look at all these bad things he he has done. And, you know, it was just him. And, oh, look, he was enabled by Ghislaine Maxwell. And now she's gone to prison, country club prison now, um, for this amount of time. And everything's fine. And, and don't worry about it. And the elite would never do such uh, naughty things. And if they do do naughty things, they get caught just like Epstein did or whatever. You know, that's sort of the, the mainstream whatever narrative about the whole thing. So this whole book is basically to show you, no, he's not an anomaly. Um, and two, that there is a very specific network that enabled his activity. And I basically trace back the history of that network to its beginnings, uh, mainly more or less in like the 1940s or so. And so I follow it um, throughout history until we get to Epstein. And then I place Epstein in the context of that. And then with that um, information, I revisit a lot of um, really important events during Epstein's career that are not that have not really been explored really by anyone as far as I'm aware. Um, and a lot of that part has to do specifically with the, the Epstein-Bill Clinton relationship, and not just the Epstein-Bill Clinton relationship after Clinton wasn't president. It's more specifically focused on when he was president, so uh, 1990s stuff, and I think a lot of that is really um, significant. So um, I do cover some stuff after that. Like I talk about uh, the basics of the the sex trafficking operation, what it was about, the big patterns there. I do talk about uh, Epstein and Clinton and uh, after Clinton was no longer president, um, Prince Andrew, um, 
Bill Gates, all of that stuff is is still in there. And I get into a, a lot of the tech stuff and um, some of the reporting that I've already done on 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 those matters is uh, expanded in in that last part of the book. But basically, I'm I'm trying to place Epstein in the context of this network. So what is this network? It's it's complicated because a lot of people, you know, when you're talking about intelligence ties, for example, with Epstein, a lot of people like to be like, oh, it was this agency he was affiliated with, or it was this agency. Um, and, you know, it, it's a lot more complex than that when you look into it. And that and I think that a lot of that is just because the world of intelligence is a lot more complicated than just saying, oh, this is what the CIA does or, oh, this is what Mossad does. Um, you know, there's a lot of crisscrossing uh, and, you know, more often than not, the power structure when you're writing about like actual power structures of consequence uh, in the world, they tend to be transnational uh, and they don't they aren't so siloed in a particular agency or particular group. They, they tend to sort of stretch out. Um, and you can find them in a lot of different milieus. Um, so, you know, people that are familiar, for example, with, um, Danny Casolero, who is the, the journalist who was basically suicided in the, in the early nineties, writing about the promise scandal, um, and some other stuff he called, uh, basically this group, the octopus. Um, and he only, I mean, he focused on certain aspects of it. I try and give an even bigger, uh, overview of the group he was trying to write about. Uh, but essentially it's really the same. Um, as the one that that Epstein was situated in. And I, I you know, obviously, uh, there's a lot of specific details in the book. But um, the network itself um, that we're talking about here, more or less, is is analogous in, in key ways to um, the group that popped up during Iran-Contra, that in the course of Iran-Contra hearings and the investigation and things like that uh, was basically nicknamed the enterprise. And that's basically what this is. It's a business. Um, and that's why I think also, um, so consistently, a lot of the focus on Epstein has been about his sex crimes, not about his financial crimes. And both are really significant. Um, you know, I mean, one, one thing about Epstein, I think a lot of people are probably familiar about is that he was involved with Steve Hoffenberg in the tower, uh, towers financial Ponzi scheme, which was literally a Ponzi scheme of astronomical proportions. I think it actually is still the biggest Ponzi scheme in us history. And Epstein is basically the guy that masterminded that. So, I mean, that's crazy, uh, in and of itself. Right. Um, and he didn't, he was never held accountable for that. He was left off the hook for that. Um, Hoffenberg, who obviously was guilty as part of that, he ended up taking all of the fall as opposed to Epstein. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that he'd get let off for that and then pop up in a bunch of really bizarre fundraisers for the Clinton family. Um, I don't know how much I want to get into that now, <laughs> uh, but we can get into that in a little bit. I'm just, you know, doing my, what is the book about ramblings, um, as an introductory thing. And I guess the best way, um, to sort of explain what the enterprise uh, is for people who are unfamiliar, there's a quote I'm going to be opening the book with um, that's from the testimony of a CIA guy who is an Iran-Contra whistleblower named Bruce Hemmings. It's about two paragraphs long, so it's not that long, so I'll just read it, and it basically... Um, is him talking about the people who are responsible for Iran-Contra. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there's no way that this group like just formed in the 80s under Reagan. This is something that predates um, 
the Reagan era by uh, several decades, but I think the Reagan era is when these guys really like took over in a, in a really big way um, that they weren't able to accomplish um, uh, so much before. So anyway, um, that quote <clears throat> starts off like this. Who are these people? They are the group that are popularly called the enterprise. They are in and outside the CIA. They are mostly right-wing Republicans, but you will find a mix of Democrats, mercenaries, ex-officio mafia, and opportunists within the group. They are CEOs. They are bankers. They are presidents. They own airlines. They own national television networks. They own six of the seven video documentary companies of Washington, D.C., and they do not give a damn about the law or the Constitution or the Congress or the oversight committees except as something to be subverted and manipulated and lied to. They abhor sunlight and they love darkness. They deal in innuendo and character assassination and planted stories. The incomplete thought in sentence. They burn and shred files if caught. They commit perjury and when caught have guaranteed sinecures with large U.S. corporations. If you let them, they will take over not only the CIA, but the entire government and the world, cutting off dissent, free speech, a free media, and they will cut a deal with anyone, from mafia to Saddam Hussein if it means more power and money. They stole $600 billion from the savings and loans and then diverted our attention to the Iraqis. They are ripping off America at a rate never before seen in history. They flooded our country with drugs from Central America during the 1980s, cut deals with Haro in Mexico, Noriega in Panama, and the Medellin and Cali cartels in Castro, and recently the Red Mafia in the KGB. They ruin their detractors and they fear the truth. If they can, they will blackmail you. Sex, drugs, deals, whatever it takes. Um, yeah, so that's Bruce Hemings. He was a guy that worked in the CIA, refused to cover up um, Iran-Contra stuff when it came to light, sort of um, styled himself a whistleblower, uh, basically attempted but failed uh, to dedicate his uh, life after uh, he was basically forced out um, of the CIA for, for not towing the line. He wanted to bring uh, rogue operations uh, to light and sort of clean up the CIA. Obviously that doesn't go very well for people that try to do that. Um, but that, you know, that's a pretty telling thing there. Cause he made this claim and like uh, th these statements in the late 1980s. Okay. So I think by now I, it's pretty safe to say that it's not just a mix of mostly right-wing Republicans. Uh, it has to be both parties um, and has obviously expanded to be a lot, you know, more powerful than it was at the time this guy was making um, these statements. Um, but if you caught that at the end that, you know, they'll do whatever they can, they'll blackmail you. They'll do anything for more power and money. Uh, all they want to do is cut off dissent, free speech and a free media. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to see, uh, that in a lot of ways, uh, what this guy was sort of warning about, uh, was, was pretty prophetic to say, uh, the very least and, and should remind people that, um, the least of our problems are, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> that, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's gone and the world is, is all okay now. Like, no, um, <laughs> the people that enabled him are still there and he's like a fall guy for, uh, stuff they were all involved with and all involved with for, you know, a long time. Any thoughts? I love that part that she said at the end there about, um, you know, it's obvious to see like what he was talking about, you know, and where we're at right now with the blackmail. I mean, they can have something on everybody right now. Everybody. 
they can get you. Yeah. Well, that's basically why I get into the tech stuff at the end of the book, mm -hmm. because I'm pretty much, you know, at the beginning of the book, I go over a lot of um, different sex blackmail operations tied to intelligence within the same network going like way, way, way back. But basically, you know, a lot of these guys, including Epstein, tried to really um, get cozy with the top guys at Silicon Valley. And I think that's just because, you know, now whatever they wanted to blackmail people with, you know, before it, it took sophisticated intelligence assets. It took, you know, people like Epstein with you know, like trafficked women and having to set them up at the right place with pinhole cameras and all of this stuff. Like right. now every all your secrets are in your digital footprint, basically. Yep. And so they can just uh, get it whenever they need it. You know, they don't have to set up a congressman uh, with some, you know, teenager. They can just, you know, if he tried to go on Pornhub or something right. once, you know, they just need <laughs> yeah. need something like that. And then it's over their head, you know, forever, basically. Uh, and that's also, what I also say at like the very end of the book is that that's part of why um, people like Epstein and, and Ghislaine Maxwell are, are irrelevant and expendable now. Um, because, you know, they did manage to sort of ingratiate themselves in those circles to an extent after Epstein's first arrest, because they could see where this was going, but you know, they don't really have the same power they used to in like today's world, mm -hmm. you know? And if you see, I mean, a great example would be Ghislaine's father, Robert Maxwell. I mean, once you, uh, stop, become more of a liability than an asset, uh, you usually get canned. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I guess I should go over some of the, the structure of the book really quick. So the book is basically in two parts. More on that in a little bit. And so the first part of the book is everything basically leading up to Epstein. Though, I mean, like Epstein and Leslie Wexner and stuff are sort of woven uh, throughout the first part. But because it's like more historical, it's, it's you know, obviously they weren't really around then. So the beginning of the book opens up with... Um, what I sort of pinpoint as the formal fusion between um, organized crime networks and intelligence, which is Operation Underworld, which took place in World War II. It was the Office of Naval Intelligence basically teaming up with organized crime, uh, the National Crime Syndicate, as it's often called, which is basically sort of a, a dominated by the Jewish and Italian mobs. And, um, you know, you had people like Lucky Luciano, uh, Mayor Lansky, um, Bugsy Siegel, all, all those types of guys, um, you know, sort of in that that criminal uh, network at the time. And I do point out in the book too that it was it was kind of, the National Crime Syndicate was like sort of a decentralized network of of different organized crime actors. But anyway, they they team up with the Office of Naval Intelligence. It's justified as being something out of um, wartime necessity, but it's really a lot more complicated than that. And basically. Um, you know, this is before um, the CIA existed. So the precursor to the CIA was was involved and to an extent. It wasn't just the Office of Naval Intelligence. Um, the OSS or Office of Strategic Services did have some involvement with it. And basically, um, you know, the, the OSS was sort of like a, a, a boys club, like the old boys club. You know, it was like a bunch of uh, the leadership roles were usually from like you know, American oligarch families of great wealth or influence or people uh, with a lot of that used to work for big players on Wall Street um, and stuff like that. So, you know, U.S. intelligence from the very beginning, like very much interwoven with the oligarchy. So it basically starts um, 
you know, basically the idea there is to show that, um, uh, these people realized they could be great business partners, basically teaming up and running the, uh, you know, covert stuff behind the scenes, right? And so a lot of these, some of these oligarch families that I sort of talk about in relation to the OSS um, and, and these other groups were, for example, involved with like the drug trade or the opium trade in China, uh, going back a long, long way, right? And obviously um, the mob got involved with that and then intelligence got involved with that. And basically it's the formation of a business. And I, you know, it's no coincidence really that later on you have these guys, uh, basically, you know, they're the enterprise by the 1980s. I mean, it really is like a business, but it's, um, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a really messed up business, um, for lack of a better word, because it's, it's basically, you know, arms trafficking, drugs trafficking, sex trafficking, um, you know, really extensive, um, you know, subversion and corruption of institutions. Um, so anyway, after that, um, I talk about, um, some of the important businessmen that were linked to the mob and became really influential talking about, uh, the Bronfmans, for example, cause they're sort of a key family to watch throughout the book, including once Epstein comes into the picture. Um, and I start to get into some of the stuff that my original series at Mint Press News about Epstein opened with, um, the Lewis Rosenstiel, Roy Cohn, J. Edgar Hoover blackmail stuff, um, how organized crime fits in, into that. And afterwards, I sort of explain how Israel fits in. So, you know, I basically talk about the formation of Israel, how the Haganah, which is the precursor to the IDF, has a lot of uh, ties to the same organized crime and intelligence network, specifically like British intelligence and um, to an extent, you know, some U.S. intelligence, really more British um, intelligence involvement with, you know, sort of tacitly supporting uh, the Haganah and some of these other groups, how people like the Bronfman, some of these other uh, businessmen were supporting them and how the mob themselves in the U.S., mainly the Jewish mob, uh, were sending a lot of weapons uh, over to the paramilitary groups in Israel. And as a result, when Israel's created, uh, you have those networks still really established in a big way. And these are a lot of the people that um, have a lot of influence on early Mossad, for example, or the early security state of Israel, the IDF, and all of that. And really those associations, you know, persist in some key ways to today. So obviously, you know, those are like, that's an overview of the first three chapters. So um, you probably get an idea, yeah, that this is like a lot of background, but it's a really important story, I think, to be told, because what I'm trying to do in the book is make a really detailed case for um, not just like putting Epstein in context and all of this stuff, but trying to really chart out the best way I possibly can and the most detailed way I possibly can how these power structures came to be and how they persist because we can't really change anything unless we can identify to the greatest extent possible anyway with like open source um, information what's going on. So after that, I get into, um, I, I go a little more in depth, well, a little more, a lot more in depth. <laughs> it's a pretty long chapter uh, into Roy Cohn, who is, um, because I think he's a really good vehicle for exploring a lot of these power structures. So um, in that chapter, I actually start off with his parents. So I go like back in time, even before the Operation Underworld stuff, to sort of explain um, how organized crime became so deeply enmeshed with uh, New York politics. And this is like going back to the 20s and 30s and stuff. Um, because by the time Operation Underworld happened, I mean, the National Crime Syndicate basically ran 
uh, the Democratic Party in New York. And that had a lot of influence uh, beyond because, I mean, keep in mind, right, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is a neat was like a New York Democrat, right? So, and he was in power at the time of World War II. Not saying that that means he was like all automatically affiliated with it, but that particular part, I mean, he had to make deals with the mob to get elected, basically. Right. And I write about that in the book uh, and also explain that basically uh, Roosevelt betrayed the mob and that really pissed them off um, <laughs> and some other stuff because uh, he allowed like a, a probe into their activities to go forward. And he said he, he was going to quash it when he was trying to get like their support but basically you had to make deals with organized crime um and there's some people uh, in that in that milieu who were you know it was all you sort of see this with with donald trump who's like roy Cohn's protege you know the art of the deal and all of this stuff i mean it's all about deal making making deals behind closed doors and roy Cohn had the system that he called the favor bank uh, you know, everyone has an open account in the favor bank, you either get like pluses or minuses. And it's all basically I mean, that's basically how this political system in New York was operating. And so basically, the Democratic Party, you know, the, the way the mob really got in was by taking over the unions um different types of unions and that's really how operation underworld happened too because they um had basically taken control of the longshoremen union and the the unions uh for dock workers and so they were looking this was the intelligence apparatus at the time uh in the during the war was looking for uh intel sources on the docks specifically to prevent like sabotage to ships so that was like one example of a union they took over, but there were others as well. And then you have cases of um, basically <laughs> politicians being like threatened with murder if they don't resign. And then like the mob backed guy goes into that position of power and blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to see where that ended up. Uh, Roy Cohn's favor bank system actually was in, in operation by a guy that he was really close to named uh, Generoso Pope. Uh, Generoso Pope Jr. was like Roy Cohn's best friend growing up. Uh, and, and he actually went on to create, or, you know, what we know today is the national Enquirer. sort of took that over and made it what it is today. Um, oddly enough, but anyway, his father, uh, basically had, I think the biggest cement company in the new, in New York city and nationally. And I think a lot of people sort of know of that, that association between, you know, like the mob and cement companies and stuff. <laughs> and that was really true here. Um, Generoso Pope was uh, very closely tied up with this guy named Frank Costello, uh, who was a, a big time gangster, one of the biggest, you know, mob figures uh, of the era on the Italian end. Um, and what was one of the inspirations for The Godfather, which, of course, is a famous movie, but first it was a novel. And apparently, you know, Vito Corleone is a composite of Frank Costello and some other guy. So, um uh generoso popes uh his junior's godfather like actual godfather was frank costello oddly enough so he basically is kind of like a <laughs> weird godfather figure here too but um he basically had this favor bank deal system the generoso pope guy and so he was very deeply enmeshed with the mob um but he also uh, controlled basically the italian vote like the italian immigrant vote in new york city because he controlled all of the italian language newspapers and so Roy Cohn like sees that and from a very young age cultivates all these people with huge media holdings, including some of his like best childhood friends and not just like the generoso Pope junior guy that has the national choir. Um, 
there like Cy Newhouse was one of his best friends going up that owns the Condé Nast brand. And I think that's like Vanity Fair, GQ, uh, the New Yorker, just like tons of stuff. And he was also in uh really close with the people that ran Hearst Publishing, which was really big at the time, and had like an insane amount of media connections that he, you know, wielded for political influence over time. But he, you know, Roy Cohn is really a, a good example of someone that um sort of stands in the middle of the world of like legitimate business and illegitimate business meaning like organized crime and intelligent you know between this covert world and the the world on the surface and there's a lot of figures in the book that sort of straddle those worlds uh, but Roy Cohn is a really good example uh, and one of the reasons he's a good example uh, is because you have like pretty direct connections to the people that Epstein would be around in the 1980s um, so, so I mean Donald Trump is obviously one example um, another example is Adnan Khashoggi um, at the same time that uh, Jeffrey Epstein basically took on Adnan Khashoggi as a client in the early 80s there's two other people that took on Khashoggi as clients that same time frame uh, one of them is Roy Cohn and the other one one is a guy named Robert Keith Gray, who I talk about in the chapter after Roy Cohn, who's a really key figure too. And he was involved in, in sex blackmail stuff. And so was his close associate, um, Edwin Wilson. Um, and there's a lot of their stuff going on back in the uh, sort of the behind the scenes um, of the Watergate scandal, which is like, <laughs> I don't know, like the, the version of that you were taught in school is like so superficial com compared to what was actually going on. So that took a while to unpack in the book. Sorry, I'm not sorry, because I think it's pretty important that people like figure it out. And also because like some of the big names from that like made their careers in Watergate, the journalist guys like Bob Woodward, uh, it's important to know about what he was doing before he was a Watergate reporter and why he's a pretty sus dude and you know why the Watergate reporting he did was pretty limited hangouty and um you know there's a lot there's a lot to be learned from that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh Anyway, so after that, I go into the name of the next chapter after the Watergate stuff is um, called The Private CIA. And it's sort of about how this Edwin Wilson guy, who was a sex blackmailer for the CIA involved with Robert Keith Gray and, you know, a lot of these other guys, you know, uh, this guy named Ted Shackley, he was a big time CIA guy um, involved with drug running, uh, wet works operations, which are like assassination squads and stuff. He used to run the the CIA station in Miami to train Cuban exiles and stuff. Um, really sus guy. His His CIA nickname is like the blonde ghost. He basically, you know, during the Carter era, Carter sort of tried to do not exactly what JFK had promised to do. You know, I, I think a lot of people probably know by now that John F. Kennedy, uh, before he got shot in the head, uh, was like, I'm going to uh, break the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it into the winds and like totally pulverize it and destroy it. Uh oh. Well, <laughs> big, big mistake there, John. Anyway, um, so Carter sort of tried to do that to an extent but not really for the same with the same motivation and not the same way but he did try and change it which means a lot of people from sort of like the old hands of the agency and that went back to the OSS and stuff like did not like the changes he was trying to make he put um some guy with a military background in charge of the CIA instead of one of the guys from the old boys club and whatever and 
uh, tried to sort of bring some of the rogue covert stuff uh, to heal. Um, and they obviously didn't like that. And so a lot of stuff were put in motion to like totally screw over Carter. Not that he was a good president. His cabinet was full of trilateral commission, crazy peoples, Evgeny Brzezinski, uh, really unpleasant human beings. So I'm not being a Carter apologist here. I want to make that really clear. But I am just trying to point out that uh, they did a thing he didn't like. And this is also something that happened uh, with Nixon. Like Nixon didn't trust the CIA from the second he was in office and felt like they, uh, you know, he, he couldn't trust them and tried to cut them out of stuff. And, you know, it's, it's just interesting anyway. So basically what happens with Carter is you have um, stuff like October surprise and some of the stuff that's better well-known sort of this private CIA tied with Ted Shackley and all these other people trying to, um, do things to keep him from getting an office. There's some other, there were some other scandals in the period too, that were sort of uh, involved the same group to varying degrees. One of them was Billy gate, which involves Billy Carter, Jamie Carter's brother um, and Libya and a, and a whole bunch of stuff. And you find even like Robert Maxwell's like uh, friends and stuff all really involved with that, especially a uh, Roland, uh, Roland Roland uh, or tiny Roland as he's sometimes called. So Anyway, in, in a lot of the uh, chapter two, I, I talk about uh, William Casey, um, who obviously went to be a, a CIA director in the 1980s um, under Reagan. But before then, he, you know, he was a big Gahuna guy in the OSS and then, you know, had a career in intelligence afterwards, too. And then with Nixon was in charge of the SEC um, and a lot of other um, interesting happenings then, specifically when he went back to private legal practice. And what's pretty interesting, too, as I point out in the book, is that um, he was the lawyer for Bear Stearns and basically the exact whole period of time that Jeffrey Epstein uh, worked there. Wow. Which is pretty interesting. And Epstein had, like resigns from Bear Stearns under really uh, suspect circumstances uh, just a couple weeks after Casey becomes CIA director and it seems possible uh, as I as I point out in the book that um, Casey or whoever Casey appointed to oversee you know his his clients right his like longtime legal clients um, had been involved in in basically in in having uh, giving the advice that Epstein should go because the guy that hired Epstein by then was CEO of Bear Stearns Alan Greenberg who's very involved in a lot of these networks and um, because of the proximity likely worked directly with Casey before Casey was CIA director, but it's a very interesting uh, connection that I don't think has been uh, really explored by a lot of people um, given the overlap and timing and, you know, the Iran Contra stuff, what, what Epstein gets involved with right after, um, after Bear Stearns is, is pretty, uh, you know, it's a pretty significant thing. Um, and, um, I guess to go on a, a little tangent here, uh, I mentioned earlier how you have Roy Cohn, Epstein, and Robert Keith Gray all sort of swimming around Khashoggi um, by 1982 or so, and Epstein's forced to leave um, Bear Stearns in like 1981, um, and then gets sort of involved in this shady world of financial bounty hunting, um, as it's called. So basically, he gets involved with like you know the offshore system, BCCI. Um, all of these like suspect financial uh, networks during that time, but both Roy Cohn and Robert Keith Gray that join up with Khashoggi in that same exact period that Epstein does uh, had worked directly under Bill Casey on Reagan's campaign um, and worked really closely with him and were like very involved with Casey um, 
in in the period of time like immediately before he became cia director basically um like robert keith gray uh is quoted a newsweek article as saying something like every time i take on a foreign client i call bill casey and i clear it with him um and and roy Cohn worked on that uh campaign with those two guys really closely and have uh, a weird mysterious relationship with robert keith gray that i also talk about in the book so um that's important because in this same period of time uh, is when the iran contra stuff starts to uh pop up so you know i explain all of this in the book first like without <laughs> epstein because um you know a problem i ran into in my epstein reporting was um i would say stuff like Oh yeah, Epstein and Adnan Khashoggi, and people be like, "Who's Adnan Khashoggi?" And I'd be like, "Oh, um, he's a weapons dealer tied to intelligence." And, you know, but that doesn't really mean much unless you know what Adnan Khashoggi did specifically, what kind of uh, person he was, the different stuff he was tied to. Like to really understand, you have to explain it. Um, Khashoggi and a lot of the other guys in this the same sort of environment um basically sex trafficked and had women that they would use to basically quote unquote butter up like clients in business and in government does that make epstein sound like an anomaly to you not at all right right um and if i just say oh weapons linked uh weapons guy linked to intelligence i mean you miss all of that detail also adnan khashoggi was involved with a lot of very suspect um real estate deals suspect stuff with savings and loans stuff in the 1980s which is also a big part of the book because basically savings and loans so this is sort of alluded to in the bruce hemmings quote that i read earlier about the enterprise that they stole a bunch of money from the savings and loans it was basically a group tied to organized crime and intelligence this fused group that i sort of chart to its origins um, that basically did all this crazy borrowing from the savings and loans industry, which was deregulated uh, by these same people when they were in government <laughs> under like Reagan, right? And so they use all of these people like Drex and Burnham Lambert, which is Michael Milken's old bank. Um, you know, a lot of these corporate raiders in the US and also, uh, it, you know, took all this money from the savings and loan industry and basically used it to take control of corporate America like completely it's really crazy um i don't go in too much detail about that um if you're interested in learning the ins and outs of of all of that um you know pete bruton is the is the the guy to look up he's written about it pretty extensively um but anyway these guys um you know aren't just doing all the they're taking all this money out and it's not just being used for these guys to take over co corporate america it's being used also to fund covert operations um, and there's a lot of involvement with this at BCCI as well, which is the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, uh, basically set up between the involvement of Pakistani intelligence and U.S. intelligence with a lot of uh, Saudi intelligence in the mix, too. And you have Israeli intelligence there as well. A big, uh, lots of intelligence people uh, used for money laundering on a massive scale, used by organized crime, also involved in sex trafficking on a massive scale, specifically to uh, service the royal family of the United Arab Emirates and apparently the Saudi royal family as well. Um, and yes, this involves minors, just like Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, and that again, this is why it's really the history is really important because this this is not just something Epstein was doing. I mean, that's just totally false. Um, to make this like an Epstein exclusive type of operation, it's not at all. So um, 
I go sort of into the details of Iran Contra BCCI in the Enterprise um, in in this in this chapter, and there's a lot to explore there, obviously. And I mean, people have written whole books about this stuff. Uh, people have written whole books about BCCI, so I'm trying to give like a detailed overview. Um, for people that have never heard of this before, but also have it be detailed and interesting enough to people that do know about it, find something new. Right. Um, so <laughs> it got a little long. I'm sorry. Um, Anyway, uh, after that, I go into the involvement specifically of uh, Bill Clinton and his rise in this network, his time as Arkansas, the role Arkansas played via MENA Arkansas and, and other things um, in Iran-Contra and also how some of the main people that brought Clinton to power uh, financially speaking, like Jackson Stevens, their relationship to BCCI and the Riotti family, who become really important when we get into uh, what Epstein was doing at the Clinton White House in the in the 90s. Um, so after that, I go into Robert Maxwell, Glenn Maxwell's father, also very involved in um, Iran Contra arms stuff to various degrees, but mainly, you know, his uh, importance in the book. Um, is a lot of it has to do with the tech stuff, like the promise software, um, which is a really critical part of the story because that's where you see a lot of the direct ties to like between this network, the quote unquote enterprise um, and Leslie Wexner, for example, Jeffrey Epstein, they all, you, you see that connection between those guys and Robert Maxwell and the promise era, which was going, you know, was a parallel operation to Iran Contra really, you know, um, it started sort of in 1982 and was well underway by 1985, uh, which is the year Robert Maxwell sold the the software to uh, U.S. Uh, laboratories involved with nuclear weapons research. Um, but it, you know, obviously continued in, in the years uh, afterwards. And, and Promise is really important for a lot of reasons because it gets into the whole uh, thing we touched on a little bit ago about the, um, you know, the future of blackmail moving into electronic blackmail in Silicon Valley and all of that stuff. Um, it's it, it, it's a pretty important to understand uh, what was going on in, in Promise and, and the networks involved. And again, um, it's intelligence and also organized crime. So it's not just one or the other. It's like a very specific group of these guys coming together and there's a lot of overlap uh, with the enterprise and also with the same exact organized crime networks that I talk about earlier in the book. Um, a lot of them seem to be centered around like MCA, which is now, I think it's a uh, universal studios. Um, but the people that used to own that or run it basically were the Wasserman's Lou Wasserman. Um, and, uh, I think Jewel Stein is the other guy that was behind it. And they were very obviously tied to organized crime. MCA people play a major role, um, in the promise scandal and, uh, also in the rise of Robert Reagan. And also the Wasserman's were involved with Jimmy Carter, helped get him into power, uh, bank, uh, helped fund, uh, Clinton's reelection campaign. I think initial campaign for president, um, as well. So back several presidents that, you know, are all, um, awful and corrupt. <laughs> um, so, so they're like basically dependent on each other right? Organized crime can't continue without their own politicians in power. Well, yeah, because they get state protection when right. they get in bed with intelligence. And intelligence uh, d gets different benefits from organized crime, right? Because they're also involved in a lot of the same rackets. And so the way a lot of these intelligence people like justify the association is because they need like 
to engage in basically illegal activity to fund covert operations that are for national security and they need to be able to finance them. So the financing comes from selling like drugs and weapons and all this stuff like illegally, right? Mm-hmm. Um because they can't fund that on the books. It has to be off the books. This is all for off the book stuff. Yeah. Because the reason Iran Contra happened is because, well, one of the reasons anyway, is because Congress got involved and was like, basically told Bill Casey of the CIA, you can't fund the Contras in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, well, I'm going to keep doing it, but I just have to find a way where I don't actually like, you know, do it in a way where Congress will find out. So we're still going to do it and we're going to do it covertly. And, you know, and they financed it not by taking money, getting Congress to pass the money, but by selling drugs, you know, in the U.S., basically, which is a lot of what, um, you know, Gary Webb's reporting, Dark Alliance and all of that um, was was uncovering in terms of like the the drug aspect. But a lot of that was um, for covert operations. And there's a lot of, I mean, really crazy stuff. And to really explain it fully, it, it had to be long um, because it, it it's really complicated when you're trying to show basically a hundred years of this stuff going on. Um, and you had to do it all with like stuff that's publicly available. Like I don't have access to the CIA's database of like, you know, a lot of the stuff they have pub like put out publicly is really redacted and stuff. So you have to do a lot more like legwork and research, uh, to put it all together, um, in a way that's compelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that that can, that comes up in here in, in the course of Iran-Contra is this plan, and it's directly tied to this company that's involved with Robert Maxwell's arms dealing group during the Iran-Contra era that's like, you know, tied to Israeli intelligence, basically. Um, but also people that are really involved with the CIA and OSS, and they, they developed this three-way trading plan. Uh, that would basically be the U.S. Uh, giving military stuff, uh, high technology, military technology to Israel. Um, and basically Israel would pass that uh, to China and then China would give a bunch of uh, like cheap weapons um, that they were manufacturing to all the um, different paramilitary groups that the, that the, that the CIA wanted to arm or that U.S. intelligence wanted to arm, uh, whether it's like the Contras um, or, you know, some right-wing paramilitary in Colombia or this group over there, you know, this group that'll do this coup in Eastern Europe or Africa or wherever uh, to sort of remove uh, plausible deniability, I guess, for the U.S. after Iran-Contra sort of got exposed, Mm -hmm. right? Um, because Iran-Contra was basically done by U.S. and Israeli intelligence working together and doing all this illegal shit. Um, and obviously there were people involved with organized crime in that because of the the drug movement and the uh, illegal arms sales, you know, the, the uh, violating the embargoes and all of that. I mean, obviously illegal activity was involved to a significant degree. And there was a lot of money laundering. And I think that's where Epstein ends up uh, <laughs> uh, fitting into this. Because, um, I mean, he basically said, not only do I find money that was looted for powerful people, I also hide money for powerful people. So obviously, to find money that's hidden away and looted, you have to know exactly where looted money uh, goes and what institutions it's in and be able to wiggle your way around in those systems. So um, I, I think it's pretty clear what sort of uh, uh, environments Epstein made his name in. And it wasn't sex trafficking. It was it was financial crimes, 100 percent. 
so the basically part one of the book ends with a uh, chapter 10, uh, which is sort of, I, I revisit Roy Cohn in the, in the Reagan era. I talk about a lot of stuff that went on in the Reagan era, aside from Iran-Contra and Promise, sort of lesser known scandals. Almost uh, pretty much all of them involve sex trafficking to some degree. So there you get the Franklin scandal. Um, I had Craig Spence, uh, people like that. And also a Covenant House um, in Americares. It, it's a lot of overlap, but obviously expanded from the second part of my original uh, Mint Press news series. Um, so um, what's pretty interesting in there, and I'm not going to give too many details because I'd really like some <laughs> people to read the book. I worked very hard on it. Um, but the main airline that Larry King used in the Franklin scandal um, was totally insane. I mean, they basically had were involved in one of the biggest bankruptcies in U.S. history, Penn Central. Uh, they were blackmailing the people that ran Penn Central's money with girls on airplanes uh, to basically keep giving them a bunch of money and like not cutting them off and doing all this crazy, like insane illegal activity. Uh, I mean, this is basically like the Lolita express, but like way before. And it's like linked to a company that like involved the pilot that dropped one of the bombs on Hiroshima and stuff. <laughs> like it's involved with the same airport Epstein and Wexner get involved with later with their CIA linked airlines. It's very crazy. Uh, anyway, so this is the main airline that Larry King used to shuttle uh, kids around as part of the Franklin scandal, um, sex trafficking horrors. Um, because, you know, writing about the Epstein scandal is horrible and what Epstein did um, to girls and stuff. I, I There is a chapter about all that stuff. Not just, you know, all these intelligence uh, things. It's awful, but I literally like cannot handle the Franklin scandal sometimes because it's like even worse um, if, if you ever want to go in that world, um, the best book on it is by Nick Bryant, but it's, um, it's very hard to stomach some of the, the stuff that happened to kids as part of that. Um, so that basically is where, um, you know, the book ends because that, or, or this first, um, part of the book ends, I tie in that airline to, uh, the limited because Wexner's limited, um, at a very specific year when they were courting, CIA airlines Epstein was already involved with Wexner they were trying to bring them to this um particular Ohio um airport uh they start hiring pilots from you know the airline that Larry King used which is pretty crazy and um so one of them is in charge of all of the limited flights even to now I thought that was really interesting uh so anyway after that I get into Epstein so it uh, you know chapters one to ten or about, you know, this network, the history of this network. Um, and then 11 to 21 is all about Epstein and Wexner and the Maxwells uh, and everything else that's going on. Um, so, you know, chapter 11 is basically Epstein's uh, early life uh, through uh, Bear Stearns. Uh, basically a, an overview of all the intelligence uh, stuff. Uh, during this period um it basically go through 1987 in that chapter um the next chapter is about epstein and real estate um for people that are really familiar with my epstein work they'll know that um i sort of was able to obtain a bunch of scrubbed reports back when i still worked for mint press news about epstein um by basically searching for jeffrey epstein property developer because he used to refer to himself all the time in the media as property developer as a real estate guy um and he only really started being like 
advisor to billionaires, financial advisor, blah, 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 the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, before then, I mean, it was property developer every time. So he had a lot of involvement with real estate. And that makes sense, right? Because one of his close associates during this time is Donald Trump, who is a New York real estate guy. Yeah. But there's this other family that's very, very important and involved with Epstein's real estate activities uh, called the Galetta's family. And there, uh, Epstein during this period basically was sharing offices with the Galetta's Um at the uh, the Villard houses in New York. And he was basically set up at that location by Steve Hoffenberg when he was working uh, for him and developing this like insanely large Ponzi scheme uh, at Towers Financial. And the Galetta's people have a lot of very telling overlap with the people that did the promise software scandal um, with, you know, the key link, I guess you could say being their lawyer, Alan Tesler, who I think is now like chairman emeritus of the Hudson Institute. What a fun guy. But he, uh, one of the main architects of the promise software uh, scandal was a guy named Earl Bryan. Um, and so you have Earl Bryan and Alan Tesler being very involved in each other's affairs. Um, and you also have a key business partner of, um, Leslie Wexner and his two mentors, uh, Max Fisher and, and Alfred Tobman, uh, being involved with Earl Bryan as, as, as well, that being uh, the Allen brothers of Allen & Co. Um, so there's a lot of, um, you know, <laughs> very disturbing and compelling overlaps between uh, these groups through the years. Um, anyway, in that real estate chapter, I get into uh, Mark Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein's brother to an extent. Um, his different real estate dealings, how Epstein came to rent a mansion from the State Department in 1992, um, in, in the mysteries therein. Uh, there's a lot of really crazy stuff going in, going on during this, this period. Uh, but basically, the way he got that State Department thing is because he was friends with uh, the Secretary of State, uh, James Baker, under uh, Bush Sr., um, and that takes on some renewed significance uh, later on uh, when it comes to figuring out why Epstein was so interested in the White House in the early 90s. Um, anyway, so after that real estate stuff, I get into Leslie Wexner, um, who Wexner, uh, Wexner from his beginnings, you know, an overview of his business career, who his mentors are, who sort of um, have shaped his opinions and, and business style and whatever over the years. Um the Epstein-Wexner relationship, um, all, all sorts of stuff um, end up um, in that chapter. And of course, Wexner's own association with organized crime that I've already written about, um, the Arthur Shapiro murder and things like that. You can find uh, that. That's already out on unlimitedhangout.com. The, the next chapter, several bits of it are now online. The most recent was released um, this past Monday, um, talking about uh, the Wexner Foundation. So I'm basically talking about Leslie Wexner's philanthropy here. Um, so, you know, you'll have the Wexner Foundation. Um, you have Wexner's uh, own bizarre claims that he's like a demon possessed. Maybe that sounds crazy. You can go up and look on Unlimited Hangout what Wexner says about his... Uh, like little friend that tells him what to do. It's all very weird. Anyway, um, so I talk about Wexner's philanthropy in depth there, uh, which includes some stuff with Harvard uh, to a significant degree. Um, and then I get into the mega group stuff and the significance of that. Um, allegations that a Wexner residence in the UK was used um, to blackmail senators apparently into supporting the Iraq war, um, how the Wexner Foundation supported Iraq war messaging on Israel's behalf, um, how Richard Pearl, 
uh, you know, one of the crazy neocons of the Bush and Reagan administration sort of fits in uh, with Wexner in various ways. And that's a pretty interesting uh, uh, connection overall. So um, uh, after that, I get into the death of Robert Maxwell and uh, who is Ghislaine Maxwell, what she was doing before her father died. And after um, she actually came to the United States uh, several months before Robert Maxwell died and was uh, apparently doing various things at his behest. And it seems like a lot of, uh, some of it anyway, was derailed once he died. And she sort of um, started working more closely with uh, Epstein, obviously. But I, I think she was, um, based on what I sort of lay out in the book, it looks like her father was trying to get her to um, like marry a really influential uh, person with a lot of clout in the Democratic Party, uh, specifically a Kennedy, but I think he would have really settled for anyone of, of influence um, and was looking to influence the Democratic Party, specifically Robert Maxwell. I mean, um, and then when he dies, you know, uh, she teams up with Epstein and, you know, they end up targeting mostly Democratic lawmakers, right? So I think it's sort of um, a divergence from the original plan, but it's related what they end up doing um, with sex trafficking and stuff. So um, after that comes uh, the stuff where I get into Epstein's visits to the white house, uh, which start in the first one is in February, 1993. It's the guy who later becomes Clinton's second treasury secretary, Robert Rubin uh, that lets him in. But at the time he's involved on in, like the, the director of the national economic council or something like that. So Epstein serial fraudster basically involved with like all these shady financial networks is invited by the national economic council guy to come meet at the white house and uh, presumably advise on economic policy. And, and after that you have um, uh, Epstein meeting mostly with Mark Middleton, who is a very key figure in the book. And I think a lot of people have sort of skipped over the significance of Mark Middleton. Um, you know, maybe people noticed like, oh, Mark Middleton died really suspiciously and creepily earlier this year. Yes, it is true. Um, but, you know, it's not just, oh, this is the guy that took Epstein uh, to the White House. Um, and that's why he was off. There's a lot more to Mark Middleton than just Jeffrey Epstein. And there's a much bigger scandal um, in the periphery of, of that, um, you know, than just letting someone like Jeffrey Epstein into the White House. Um, Mark Middleton was part of a really big scandal that's been very successfully covered up, in my opinion, uh, during the Clinton administration. And one of the reasons it's been covered up is because the following administration of George W. Bush the first time George W. Bush invokes executive privilege, it's not because of something he wants to like cover up that the Bush administration has done or is doing. It's to cover up uh, document releases about Mark Middleton. And that's pretty crazy. So like ostensibly Bush is elected because people are, don't like the Clintons because they're corrupt and like insanely corrupt and super deep and corrupt. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, and so they're like, Oh, hope and change. Uh, we'll elect <laughs> the other party this time. They'll totally be different. Second Bush. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so Bush gets in, who's supposed to be, Oh, well I'm going to be different than Clinton and then covers up uh, Mark Middleton basically. And I mean, that's crazy. I mean, he blocks the release of all the stuff to Congress, um, essentially. So he, George W. Bush steps in to cover up what Mark Middleton was doing in the mid-1990s. And Epstein is meeting with Mark Middleton in the mm -hmm. mid-1990s. And so are some other pretty significant people. It's pretty nuts uh, what I think is going on there. So I don't... Um, 
I think when we get closer to the release date, I'll probably um, do a podcast that's like, you know, a, a deep dive into into all of that stuff. But, you know, basically what I'm trying to do in, in that chapter in the following chapter um, is sort of unpack what Epstein, um, uh, what I think Epstein was doing with Southern Air Transport. So one of the, if you read part four of my original series at Mint Press, I talk a lot about Southern Air Transport, which was the main, one of the main CIA linked or owned really um, airlines that during Iran-Contra was funneling the drugs and the weapons and all of this stuff um, all over the place. And so in the mid-1990s, well, really between 93 and 95, uh, Wexner's The Limited with the involvement of Epstein starts courting all these different airlines to Columbus, Ohio. Um, Southern Air Transport is just one of the CIA-linked airlines that they're trying to court. They, they try and involve another one. Well, they do actually involve another one called Aero Air that was also involved with Iran-Contra and arm smuggling and drug smuggling and a bunch of other illegal stuff, a BCCI also, um, among among other things. So, the, the, you know, out of all the airlines in the United States, those are the ones that, you know, the limit is trying mm-hmm. to bring in during the time where Epstein's visiting Mark Middleton at the White House. So the question I've always been trying to answer uh, is why? Right. Like, obviously, the Southern Air Transport thing with Epstein is really sus, Uh, not just because of the airline's history, but because key figures in the Iran-Contra conspiracies like Alan Fears and and Richard Secord are like, yeah, yeah, relocate Southern Air Transport to Ohio for the limited. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's just totally nuts. And, you know, and they're hiring pilots from the from the Franklin scandal airline. And it's, it, it's pretty insane. And even at the time you had like Ohio's inspector general, uh, general refer to this um, route that Southern air transport was going to take for the limited as the mayor Lansky run, like basically knew it was tied up with organized crime. Uh, he and another guy in Ohio's government um, told a local journalist that they thought Epstein the limited here was in some sort of deal with the CIA. Um, at the time. So the question is like, okay, well, what were they doing with the airline? Why was it going from Hong Kong to Columbus? Why did they spend all of this money getting Southern air transport there? Because this is a deal that made no financial sense. Like they basically gave a bunch of money to Southern air transport to make them come. Um, and Southern air transport ended up going bank, uh, like bankrupt, like four or five, uh, years later. Well, was it like, Oh, this is going to help like the limited, like Les Wexner, this is going to help his business. Is that what like the cover of? Well, it, it was done for the limited, but they, they framed it as like, it's going to make X number of jobs in the local area. It's going to bring in this stuff. It's going to create all this opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the whole history of it though was really crazy. Cause even before they get to Southern air transport, they're trying to do stuff like, um, change the laws. So no American citizens have to be on the flight. And that's like, what? <laughs> like, why do you need that? Like, that doesn't really make any sense, you know? And then they're trying to get Aero Air involved, and they do. And Aero Air's like, yeah, we're going to do stuff with the Limited, but uh, we're going to bring, like, fresh flowers and uh, random stuff from Latin America. It, like, didn't make sense, like, the list of stuff they claimed they were going to be transporting for them. Because, you know, the Limited is a textiles business. Right. You know, it's like clothing. So their their main supplier isn't in is in Asia. Yeah, mast industries uh, for a long time. So like that makes more sense 
for the limited anyway. But Aero Air was like after drug trafficking from Latin America to the U.S. for the CIA right. and stuff. You know, they're like, oh, <laughs> not yeah, cocaine, we're gonna do that too. Just fresh cut <laughs> flowers because <laughs> you'd be like, it's not like you can grow flowers in the U.S. <laughs> right. Um, only we need in to exotic <laughs> Colombia. Um, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, the stuff would be funnier if it wasn't so evil. Because, um, there, I mean, there's some really, like, amusing stuff that popped up while researching this book. Like, like these big conspirator guys in, in, the, in the really totally insane uh, finance scandal for the 96 election that I talk a lot, a lot about uh, in the book. They're like, let's team up and make a self-inflating novelty balloon business. And it's like, who are you weirdos? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> self-inflating balloon business sounds yeah, good i know and it's like you know okay so if i'm a cia airline that wants to smuggle drugs what should i say i'm actually moving that aren't drugs fresh cut flowers you know <laughs> like they just want something that sounds really nice where people go ah stuffed animals and fresh cut flowers and valentine's day plushies from the jungles of Columbia to, <laughs> to Columbus, Ohio. You know, I mean, I don't know. These people are weird. So anyway, I was trying to answer the question of what are they moving around? Um, and I think I answered that. And it, 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 I mean, I would be shocked if it wasn't intimately related to what was what Epstein was doing with Mark Middleton at the time, because there's a lot of, you know, this is Hong Kong to Columbus. There's a lot of really crazy stuff going on with China uh, in the U.S. during this period. And with the Clinton administration specifically. And I'd really rather get into the details of that uh, when I have time to unpack it. So I don't get accused of being like a China hater or whatever, because it's not what this is. Basically, um, what I will say is that there are some figures that pop up in this, this particular scandal in the Clinton administration that have ties to like the Chinese military and intelligence to an extent. But they're also like organized crime guys very involved in like Macau which is like the Las Vegas of China. Like they run hotels that are basically like brothels, um, casinos and all this stuff. I mean, they're sort of, I mean, you know, they're like Sheldon Adelson's, but Chinese. And Sheldon Adelson also had a bunch of his casinos in Macau, right? I mean, that it's not like, um, oh, there's no crime there uh, just because it's in China. Like that's not how this was operating at the time. Uh, it, but anyway, at this particular time, Macau was still like its own enclave. It wasn't officially taken over uh, by the Chinese government until like 1999. But anyway, a lot of the these key guys here that are tied up in the Macau gambling, brothel, whatever, um, are also on major like Chinese Communist Party advisory councils and stuff. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, it a lot of power structures and in, in governments around the world, whether they're adversarial or allied with the U.S., tend to have a lot of these same uh, at least similar power structures to what I, I detail in the first part of the book, because it's it's business, dude. That's how business works. Yeah, there's a list of things that they need. They need an airline. They need intelligence, and they need the mob <laughs> together. Well, I mean, the, the mob's always been in the in these places, right? So, mm -hmm. um, in the beginning of the book, I talk a lot about the current ruling party. Well, one of the main political forces in Taiwan, the KMT which used to be, you know, the nationalist Chinese, Chiang Kai-shek and all of that defeated by Mao Zedong. And then they retreat to what is now Taiwan. Right. And obviously Taiwan is, is big in the news and stuff, but like the people 
like Shanghai Shek's network and stuff are like were like really dirty and really involved in the drug trade and really involved in organized crime. That doesn't mean that like Mao Zedong was an angel. It just means like all of these guys are dirty. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, a lot of people get really sensitive, like, oh, you made a criticism of China, but blah, 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 blah. blah. Well, they, they do shit too, dude. Like, yeah, just because the US and the CIA are awful doesn't mean like the people they're trying to like screw over or fight with are like not the good. same. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, they pretty much are the same in a, in a lot of key ways. Yep. I, I don't want to have to <laughs> argue with these people that like, oh, Whitney, you've turned into like, a, you know, I don't even know. <laughs> Just because you, yeah, right. Someone accusing me of becoming like a, you know, it, I'm just going to hate on the the commies, well, the chai com. I mean, it's not like that at if all. If you say anything that's even remotely like not negative about somebody, they act like you're saying something positive it's like i don't know i either get hit with a bunch of whataboutism or i get accused of like if i criticize one group of like automatically loving their other group right. and it's like okay people time to like increase your brain power and realize mm -hmm. that this is like not how shit works in the right. real world like sometimes everyone is bad <laughs> in right. the story that you're <laughs> writing about like sometimes there are no good people in the national governments because in my opinion, most of the quote unquote good people are just like regular people all over the world and every country there's like regular good people. Right. right. And then the people yep. that manage to climb their way to the top yeah. usually do so by being huge dicks, you know, yep. they walk <laughs> all over everybody. They're the worst people that there are. Yeah. Right? I mean, whether you're climbing your way to the top in New York city or Beijing, or Moscow, or Brussels, or wherever, you are probably stomping on heads the whole way up. And it's mm -hmm. probably not a pretty ascent, you know, like none of those people are clean, I think. But yeah, anyway, so there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. And the key linchpin uh, that comes up uh, in here is is basically, you know, Israel. Um, also, the Israel China relationship, um, you know, uh, covert arms smuggling going on at the time. Um, uh, these Chinese weapons dealers are really significant to the Epstein story, because Epstein's earliest involvement with like, arms dealers and arms smuggling is in the early 1980s and it's directly involved with Chinese state-owned um, arms smugglers. And at some point in the early 90s, um, those arms sales have to stop because of U.S. government policy and they start being smuggled in and they're caught by the ATF and all this other stuff is going on. Uh, but it gets shut down and there's a bunch of crazy stuff that happens to shut it down. Because, it, I mean, they get caught the way they're trying to smuggle it in conventionally, which is through ships uh, landing in the West Coast. Um, and, I mean, it, I don't know how much detail I should really go into because, I mean, it's really it's really mind-boggling. Like, basically, once I stumbled on this, I was like, okay, I have to, like, rewrite the whole end of the book. Oh, crap. You know, I thought it was just mm -hmm. going to be, like, Southern Air Transport is shady. Da, da, da. No, right. it's, uh, I, you know, it, it was a really important question to answer. And I think it um, shows a lot of um, important stuff going on. Um, and it also shows, I think that there's a reason that all the focus on the Epstein Clinton relationship has been after he was president because no one wants you looking at Mark Middleton. Wow. 
no one wants you looking at that guy. Not even George W. Bush wants you. I mean, the first invocation of, of executive privilege in the Bush administration is to keep information about Mark Middleton from coming out and what he was doing at the White House. That was his dad, though, probably, right? I mean, George W. Bush didn't know what he was doing. What? Don't. Don't you start. I mean, yes, he does. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Oh, okay. my God. Dick Cheney was his vice president. Are you? Yeah, but, well, George W. Bush was kind of a dummy. Well, I mean, yeah, well, uh, an awful public speaker, but that doesn't mean he's he's like too stupid to be a criminal. A lot of these people are are stupid <laughs> and do dumb stuff because they get caught. You know what I mean? Like Mark Middleton, as an example, like he got caught. It was basically mm -hmm. like found out that there was like some really bad stuff going on around this guy at the White House. And there was I mean. The, uh, the there was a congressional investigations into it and the guy pleaded the fifth 28 times middleton including the question are you a foreign agent like are you an agent of a foreign government he pleaded the fifth uh and pretty much every key witness in the entire investigation not just mark middleton everyone else no one cooperated uh-huh you know I, I mean january 6 right you know is like such a show trial when you look at this stuff and like no one cooperated and nothing happened to them. And, and the stuff there was like really damaging to like national security and involved like intelligence intentionally flooding gang zones in the U S in the nineties with, with cheap weapons on purpose. Like, I, I mean, wild stuff going on. <laughs> and at the same time, one of the guys, that looks like to be involved with it. Epstein is also trafficking like women, dude. Ah. Uh -huh. Anyway, <laughs> but you, this is why the timeline's important because a lot of Epstein's like the scale of the sex trafficking stuff with him starts to get way bigger at, in like the late nineties onwards. And that's why like a lot of the people that have come forward, most of them, uh, you know, it's like the early two thousands that Epstein was abusing them and the massage stuff and all this stuff was going on. Mm -hmm. That looked like it started to develop more in terms of scale um, in like the late 90s. And that's when a lot of this other stuff had sort of concluded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but this this stuff is like really critical to the whole Epstein story, I think. And it's it's totally um, it's totally mental. And I think it also is sort of an, an undercurrent in the Prince Andrew relationship, too, because um, Prince Andrew at the time, Epstein and Maxwell were like you know, setting it up with girls and he was traveling around the world with them getting massages and had his own massage table when he traveled with them and all this stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, he was also um, basically shilling for weapons dealers and, and got accused of that because he was like this um, representative for the UK trade and industry. I forget the exact, um, uh, the exact position uh, that he had at the time. But um, in that position, he was accused repeatedly of um, basically lobbying on behalf of weapons dealers. And some of the weapons dealers are involved with, you know, uh, Epstein's own past in those, in those networks like BAU systems. Um, another one is involved with uh, Indonesia and one of the key um, families in this, this Clinton uh, stuff uh, with Mark Middleton and stuff that I've been alluding to involves uh, the Riyadi family of Indonesia, who were like some of the biggest oligarchs of that country involved with all that stuff. I mean, it's pretty, um, it's pretty crazy. So that may explain part of why they wanted influence over Prince Andrew among, um, 
among other things, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, so anyway, a lot of the, the book uh, towards the end, like focuses on this kind of stuff um, and, and sort of tries to make sense of what the Southern air transport thing was actually about and what the early Clinton uh, white house visits by Epstein uh, were about and what was actually going on there. Uh, after that, I get into the nuts and bolts of the sex trafficking operation itself. Um, and I basically, if you actually spend a lot of time looking at it, it starts to become pretty apparent that there were two parallel operations involving the trafficking of women going on. Uh, one was much larger in scale and involved, um, you know, the exploitation of vulnerable women or women that were promised career help or other nebulous forms of help. Uh, they were specifically seeking out people that wanted to be models, uh, musicians, artists, basically talented uh, teens and, and women. Um, it, but also, you know, there's this parallel operation where they're looking for women with those same characteristics, uh, but they invest a lot more time and money uh, in them. And they basically get like married off to people in the network. Like they become like the elite wives and girlfriends of, uh, of these, you know, Epstein's people like that. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like a, a two tier system, um, that's going on with the, the sex trafficking stuff. And so some of the women in that like elite girlfriends tier, a lot of them accompany Epstein when he goes to the Clinton white house. Um, several of them do. Um, and, and they end up, um, you know, getting involved with, um, some of the, the, the top people in these sort of, um, you know, um, shadier, uh, networks in which Epstein is is enmeshed uh, over time, and it, and when the when those women more recently, like after Epstein was infamous and all this stuff, were asked about him, I mean, instead of being like, oh, he was awful and whatever, they like gush over him. They're like, oh my god, I like loved him so much, and he did so much for me, and he's like just the greatest man, and I'm just so <laughs> sad that his life turned out like this. And what I mean, it's just like really extreme the difference, you know? Wow. So I sort of try and un unpack why that is. Um, then after that, I go into the Prince Andrew relationship in detail um, and, and the Bill Clinton after president relationship. And basically Epstein, uh, it looks to me, uh, was totally involved in setting up the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative. His, his um, lawyers argued as such. And it also looks like he was, you know, involved with the Gates Foundation from a really early stage and the Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation uh, do a lot of stuff together. Um, so I end up exploring, you know, those relationships, uh, the significance of that, which in a nutshell, the significance is Epstein is a career financial criminal. His relationship with the Clintons from the off is around illegal uh, fundraising activities. And, mm -hmm. and shady financial stuff that the Clintons should not be doing, <laughs> right? And so that's the thread that Epstein has with them throughout the White House. And then he comes and is basically advising them on how to set up their philanthropy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think the Clinton Foundation is really about? I mean, we all know what it's really about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it's like a slush fund. Mm -hmm. So uh, basically Epstein was setting that up for them by the looks of things. Um, and so I round out the book, sort of alluded to this earlier, talking about the Silicon Valley connections and all of the stuff. Um, you may recognize, uh, for people that are familiar with my, my Epstein stuff, um, I did last year an article about Epstein and Bill Gates. A lot of that stuff is in there, but slightly more developed. Um, uh, the stuff with the Maxwell sisters, Isabel and Christine, um, is in there as well. 
Um, and then talking about um, Carbine 911 and some of that other stuff I've written on, about that for Mint Press News. So it's sort of like an amalgamation of my um, some of my past reporting, but sort of weaving together all the stuff I've talked about before um, and putting it in, in greater context uh, for people. So, yeah, that's essentially the book in a nutshell. Wow. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, what I'm trying to do today is give like people a, a rough overview of the structure of the book and sort of like what's in it. Um, because, you know, from the description, you know, online about the book, I mean, you're not going to know all the details about it. And I'm going to be doing some interviews going forward and stuff this week and over the next couple of weeks, you know, about the book. Um, uh, and on this podcast, um, you know, I'll be having some more detailed stuff as, you know, publication date gets closer about, you know, some of the, the big revelations in the book. Because there are a lot. I think the Southern Air Transport Clinton White House stuff is probably the biggest. Uh, but there's a lot of big stuff about like Wexner that I haven't put out yet. The real estate stuff's pretty significant. Um, and, um, you know, where Ghislaine Maxwell fits into all this. I think there's a lot, um, you know, a lot of food for thought, to be sure. Because uh, this is a pretty big book. Uh -huh. But the main goal is to put all of this stuff into context. And so people can see that, like, this is a pattern of behavior. Like, Epstein was in no way an anomaly. And that's part of why he was able to do this for so long. Because there's a lot of people that do this type of activity um, besides him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and basically at the end of the day, uh, the thing, the thing is this stuff, Epstein specifically like needs to be investigated in a, in a, in a, like an official sense. Yeah. But the problem is because this has been going on so long and the blackmail aspect and all of this, the government is also incapable of investigating itself. And what does that mean? Like, how do we chart a course forward when the only way is to have, like, major official investigations, um, but, you know, the government can't investigate itself because it's too corrupt? Mm -hmm. I don't know. So that's the conversation uh, I'd, I'd like this book to um, have, essentially, because, you know, it's not just about Epstein. And that's what the whole first half of the book is about, is that this is so baked in to the power structure, not of the, just the U.S., um, of Israel and, and various other governments as well. The UK, um, being, you know, a standout example. Um, I mean, the U S is an empire. So if it's this bad in the U S think of all the U S client States. I mean, how many countries are ruled by a power structure like this right now? I mean, it's massive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have to have a real conversation about the implications, um, of this. And, you know, that's why I took so much time and did so much detail here, because you really have to know the history to understand what's going on here. It's not just enough for me to say Epstein had Iran-Contra connections. You know, most people are like, what is, what is Iran-Contra? What does that even mean? Oh, that was a scandal in the Reagan era. Like, you have to sort of know what it was basically about. And what it was basically about is that it, the power structure in the U.S., uh, the intelligence agencies uh, decided to basically go on all these, like, do all these crazy, insane, illegal, and dangerous covert operations um, and not tell anyone about it um, and do all this arms and drug running, including to the extent that they were drug, you know, uh, destroying American communities by flooding them with drugs and weapons mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. You know, I mean, this is this is like big scandal stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, that's basically what Iran-Contra was about. And it what Iran Contra is just the arms and drug running part of it, right? Promise is the other part, and there's all this other stuff going on there, and and it's a very complex situation. So you have to have an appreciation for how this 
developed what happened there because if Epstein's involved with those networks you have to know what they were doing and then you have to be able to see where Epstein fits in there and you know these people are still in power today okay Epstein's gone suicided whatever we can forget about him the the people that made him are still there yeah yeah so nothing's going to change and it's not just even about kids. I mean, it's about like the future now. Right. It's about, um, you know, that that quote I started off with, they're going to take away free speech, the free media, they're going to destroy dissent. I mean, they're going to create a dictatorship because all they care about is more money and more power. And, you know, that guy said that quote freaking like almost 40 years ago. I mean, how bad do you think it's gotten now? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? So this really like has to be looked at. And so, you know, I, I know that there were some people uh, who I really like and, and trust in independent media. And they like asked me not to write the book or not right now because of everything else going on. Um, but, you know, this is really important. And in this history is really important because we just won't. Um, I, I think people need to have an understanding of, of how we got here. Because that we don't know we if we don't know what the problem is, how do you fix it? You know, yep. it shows a pattern. You know, if you can yeah. see this pattern, because I think that people can look back and they can say, "Oh, in the fifties, MK Ultra it was really bad. They were bad." But you know, they think it was like so long ago. And you have to ask people, when would it have changed? When would it have stopped? Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. So, like. If you're talking about intelligence operations and you tell someone, oh, in the third, uh, I don't know, in the 50s, the CIA committed all of these horrible crimes and did all of these horrible things. And they're like, oh, yeah, I believe that. And if you're like, the CIA did something horrible three years ago, they're like, conspiracy theorist. Right. You know? Okay. Right. So if I can mm -hmm. show the continuity from then to now, I think it can it can help have an, have an impact. Yep. Because, yeah, nothing has changed. Um, just mm -hmm. the management of the perception has changed, um, how people perceive institutions has changed, but also at the same time, you know, that's been, that was successful for a long time, but now everything is like falling apart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so people are starting to be like, huh, what's going on? So I hope, you know, this book has, has some sort of impact. Um, so anyway, because of, um, uh, the time frame, uh, want to close out talking about some stuff about the book. So, um, like I said, the book is really long. It's like um, over 800, 800 pages with citations. Mm -hmm. It's even longer. And that's not counting an introduction um, and stuff. So, um, my publisher decided that the print version, just because of supply chain issues and cost, is going to have to be printed in two separate volumes, which is uh, which is complicated for sure. But, um, you know, I'm the writer, not the publisher. Um, I'll be going on his podcast and he'll be explaining why that is. But it has to do um, with the realities of how printing is today because of supply chain issues and costs and things like that. So anyway, um, for people that pre-ordered the book already, um, you will be getting both volumes for what you paid, but subsequent, um, orders, it's, uh, it's basically two books now. Um, and you know, um, I didn't want it to be <laughs> that way. Um, but that's sort of how it is. However, um, the ebook and the audiobook will all be as one volume, right? So, my interest is in getting this work shared widely 
So, you know, as much as I would like people to buy the hard copy, I understand that's complicated. So I think it would be um, important um, that people consider uh, getting the ebook or the audiobook uh, version in that case. Because, you know, I don't really care so much about like making money off of this. Um, I did have to take time off from regular work to write it. So, you know, it would be nice to recoup some of what I did not make, um, you know, during that time. But I'm not like in this for, you know, oh, I just want to get all these royalties and whatever. Like, I just I just want people to like read it and have a conversation about what it means and about who Jeffrey Epstein really is and and all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, So the ebook will be available for sale uh, soon. Uh, before the official, um, you'll be able to pre-order the ebook before the publication date, which is September 22nd. Um, but as far and it'll be released probably like a couple weeks at most after the official publication date. Yeah. Um, and audiobook will be a little bit after that. Um, there's already a company doing the audiobook, but I'm not exactly uh, sure how long it'll take. And, uh, but I will find out for people that are in Europe my publisher is speaking this week to distributors in the UK. So I should have uh, some news for people um, on that front so that people not living in the U S don't have to pay uh, such high shipping costs. But again, this is part of the circumstances of how things are right now because the economy is insane. Um, So, you know, some of that is unfortunately out of my hands, but if you're looking for the economical way uh, to read uh, the book, it would be an ebook or an audio book. Just, uh, I'm going to be really honest, um, about that now that it's, uh, basically in two volumes. So, uh, it's going to be parts one and two, uh, what I was originally hoping to have in a, a big thick book is now being split into, um, two books because it is, uh, pretty long. And, you know, if there is a way for the publisher to do it another way, I really hope you'll, um, you know, be able to do that. But as of right now, that's sort of, um, uh, sort of where it stands. Um, and Star, I know you've been getting some other uh, questions from people. So if you want to address some of the the frequently asked uh, stuff you've been getting that I haven't already mentioned, uh, now would be a good time. I think it's pretty much what you just mentioned. People want to know if there's an audiobook, They want to know if there's an ebook, and they want to know about international shipping. That's pretty much the main big questions. So, okay, super. We've got that covered. All right. Well, thanks everyone to uh, listening to me ramble about my book. Uh, my brain's kind of fried because it's just been, uh, it's, it's been a lot of work, <laughs> uh, yeah. for sure. So, um, yeah, it might take me a while for me to be a, a more eloquent speaker. I have the like, um, I, I, all I was doing was helping you while you were writing the book, like, you know, just, you know, just doing a little tiny bit. I can't even imagine doing what you did. I really can't. <laughs> I, my, the only thing I could respond with is like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> like I can't even like make a word in my head. That's how um, mentally taxing uh, this has been. But uh, it's the most important thing I've ever done. I mean, if you really appreciate um, my my work. I would really appreciate it if you would take the time uh, to read this book because it's history that everyone should know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Epstein, I think, is is a is important because a lot of people knew that something was really weird there and he got a lot of attention. And I don't think they were expecting that. And he is a really important thread that we can all pull on that that is of public interest. It, people can pull on that thread and unravel a lot of uh, what the power structure is now. And in order to, you know, 
discuss how we change the power structure to benefit the people. We had to know what the power structure really is. Uh, that way we can stop being like, vote blue no matter who and and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like we have to really understand what was going on here. We have to understand like what both of these parties have done and what they have covered up and what, you know, what is really running the show in the United States of America and the broader U.S. empire. It's It's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, thanks everyone for listening. Sorry if this was more rambly, rambly, rambly than normal. Um, hopefully be back to a regular style podcast pretty soon. Um, like I said, some of the, this is an overview sort of of what the book uh, covers and what it's about. Um, I go, I, I hope to do some podcasts in the near future that are more detailed. Uh, stuff as we get closer to publication date and I will be doing some interviews um, with some other uh, news outlets and and different shows and stuff over the next couple weeks or so so if you're interested in that I would encourage you to sign up for the unlimited hangout newsletter you know if you do that all my uh, media appearances updates about the book um, excerpts about the book that come out like I said one went out on Monday and uh, other articles that either I put out or people that contribute to Unlimited Hangout put out, you know, it's you get it all in your inbox straight away because who knows what social media is going to be like <laughs> in the coming months. It's it's not mm-hmm. like that's getting any better. So um, can I say something? Yeah, um, of course you can. I, I, I just kind of wanted to say, like, everybody who contributed, you know, continued their membership while you were writing the book, you know, that $5 a month, that was like really awesome of people, you know, and you guys should all be proud. That was this insanely awesome of people. Yeah. Cause yes, I, I was doing the book and I, I mean, I was, I, it's so long. Like I wrote so much, like I worked harder than I've ever worked in my life, but unfortunately like people, it's not an immediate thing, Yeah, you know, so people aren't seeing it right away. So the people that, that, you know, kept their memberships and yeah. like, I just, I can't thank you people enough. Like this book would not have happened without you. Um, and like I said, it's the most important thing I, I think I've ever done yeah. ever. Maybe the most important thing I ever will do. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Oh, I don't know, but but it, it, it feels that way right now. Um, it feel it feels, it feels pretty big. So, um, you know, I couldn't have done it without, without you guys uh, backing me up. So, um, you know, yeah. This one's for you. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to be too cheesy, yeah, yeah. but I, I mean, I really do appreciate it. I have two little kids and, um, you know, I lost childcare in July cause Chile is a, a crazy place. So, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I really couldn't have done it without, without your guys' support. So really thanks a lot for that. And I really hope you all like the book. They're going to love so it. Hard. Please like it. They're going to love it. Yeah. So um anyway if anyone has um i guess maybe i can do um an ama ask me anything about epstein stuff closer up to the book too for for members and people that that were supportive that uh or something mm-hmm. else if you have other ideas you know feel free to to comment you know on on the rock fin of this podcast or in the telegram group or uh sometimes i have time to check twitter you know just around and i'll, I'll do my best to, to answer stuff yeah Um, So yeah, thanks everyone and um, see you all in the next episode.